0: Hello, welcome everyone, and thank you for joining us for this in conversation event uh, on leveling up or left behind um, leveling up has been the political mantra of the past three years, but regional inequalities are nothing new and nor in fact government responses to try and tackle them um, things I can think of from the past 25 years or so have included the regional development agencies introduced under the new Labor government, the local enterprise partnerships and the northern powerhouse brought in by the coalition. Theresa May's place agenda, and most recently, of course, leveling up under Boris Johnson. And it remains to be seen how the next prime minister is going to reimagine this agenda. But it's pretty clear that wishing for regional inequality isn't the same as delivering it. So one of the things I wanted to reflect on is what is the role of universities in all of this? Since Harold Wilson's White Heat speech in 1963, we've had the idea that investing in science and technology can help to, in Wilson's words, provide the answer to the problem of Britain's declining areas. And I don't disagree with that assessment, but it's not just about making investment, it's about making it in a way that responds to local needs and that empowers communities. So for UCL, our sense is that we should be thinking about the positive impact we have in our community in London, but also more widely throughout the UK working to understand how we can make meaningful uh, contributions, things like supporting the development of social infrastructure or thinking about what place, base, place building looks like in different contexts. My particular interest is thinking about how we think about this through the lens of our academic research, including through research carried out with deep engagement with communities of the sort that John Tomney is doing and I'm sure we'll talk about. And I'm also interested in how our expertise can help to inform policymakers not just in national government, but in local government as well to deliver for their localities and their communities. So UCL has been supporting some of this work through our grand challenges and our UCL public policy programmes, which have jointly organised today's event. I was privileged to join John as part of that work in County Durham last year to visit the Durham Miners Hall, and which is now home to the Red Hills Foundation, and to visit the village of Sacriston to meet some of the residents and community leaders he's been working with as part of his research. As well as being profoundly inspiring, it also showed the disconnect between a lot of the national policy and even local policy and rhetoric on what's actually happening in communities and what communities need. So to return to levelling up, I think it's pretty clear it's not something government can do to communities, it can only be delivered by working with them and getting communities themselves to set the agenda. We might be about to see the rhetoric change, but I don't think that will. And so I'm delighted to introduce here two people who I know are going to have some fascinating insights on the subject. Fiona Hill is the author of There's Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, which has just come out and which reflects on her own journey from County Durham to Washington, D.C., as well as considering the political costs of neglecting left behind places. Fiona is a senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institute and previously served as deputy assistant to the President of the US and as senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council. And John Tomini is professor of urban and regional planning at the Bartlett School of Planning. He was a member of the UK 2070 Commission into Regional Inequalities, chaired by Lord Kerslake, and he's a trustee of Red Hills of the Durham Miners Hall. So, with that, I think it's over to John.
1: Okay, yeah, thank you. Uh... Thank you very much for that, uh, Sarah. Um, what I want to do today is talk to, to Fiona about a book. So it's the book which has uh, brought us here today. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and I, I'm, I'm going to ask you all to go away, and if you do nothing else after this seminar, read it. Because it's a book that addresses, I think, one of the, the big questions uh, that confronts the societies of the global north, let's call them that. Um, and that is what to do uh, about these places which are sometimes called left behind places a very complex and difficult term i think not ideal to describe the places we're going to be discussing but nevertheless uh, widely used to refer to those places uh, that are excluded from growth and wealth in our societies um and fiona has written a fantastic book about this a book that is written with great empathy and insight about the nature of these places and, and their predicaments now, some people might have uh, been attracted to attend this event uh, in the hope that, given Fiona's well-known background as an advisor to a former president of the United States, we might get some juicy gossip or anecdotes, but personally, I'm not interested in that. Uh, so I'm not going to ask you any questions about that. Um, the hypothesis of Fiona's book is actually set out, I think, rather neatly on page 181, where she argues that there are political costs. When places are effectively written off and their most basic needs are neglected. So, although this book is a memoir, it's actually addressing that uh, question, I think. Uh, it's in four parts. The first part is about uh, growing up in County Durham in, in the north of England. Um, uh, that's a background that she and I share. Secondly, um, it describes her move to the United States and her involvement in the policymaking world in Washington, DC but also uh, offers her reflections on being exposed to the uh, conditions in the U.S. Rust Belt. And a third aspect of the uh, book uh, is uh, reflections on the time she spent as an expert in Russia, giving a first-hand account of the consequences of the market shock doctrine and the geography of all of that. And I think what's distinctive about the book, and I've read many books on on this topic, probably too many actually, um, is how Fiona deftly links these three apparently separate episodes into a single story. And the fourth part of the book is about uh, policy. Um, so that's enough from, uh, that's, I think we've got enough of a preamble now. Uh, what I'd like to do is, is basically say, to or ask Fiona to describe, to begin by describing the world you came from, uh, Fiona, and what happened to it, uh, which is, a, I suppose, about a quarter of the book. Um, you you um you describe you describe i think in a very rich and convincing way a world that i think you became conscious of just as it was passing um so what tell us about this world
2: well thanks uh, so much john and sarah and everybody else uh, from ucl for hosting me today and you know just uh you know to uh frame this as well i mean john and i actually pretty much come from almost the same place in some respects Uh, John um, from Sacriston and growing up in Sacriston in County Durham. My grandfather was born in Sacriston but my grandfather as the oldest son of a actually rather large family um, of coal miners um, which was pretty typical in the time moved around pretty much every pit village in uh, County Durham starting in Sacriston but ending up in lots of other places and the story of my family was one of constant travel in search of work my family were geographically mobile around uh, county durham but certainly not socially mobile unless it was downwards and as john you know saying I, I was basically i was born in 1965 at a time when the durham coal field was already in trouble um the nationalized uh, coal industry um was um, having um, a very hard time staying profitable and was obviously competing uh with other um, uh, global uh, energy developments, uh, shifts in uh, the global economy. So this all really be- did begin um, in that period uh, in which um, I was born. And I, and I think, as John points out, you often become acutely aware of something uh, when it's ending, you know, when people are kind of reflecting uh, on how things used to be. And I grew up, my father also being a coal miner, he'd actually lost his job um, in the coal mines just before I was born and had then been forced to try to figure out how to retool because he'd worked in multiple mines. And the last mine that he worked in, um, a, a place called Woolly Colliery, just outside of a place called Crook in County Durham, which isn't too far away um, from Sacriston. It closed in 1963. And my father had no other qualifications other than being a coal miner um he had left school at 14 the only certificate he actually had it wasn't of you know even attendance to school it was of good handwriting because my dad had actually taken some handwriting classes so his only qualification was nice copperplate uh, uh handwriting he'd taken courses um as a result of uh, the work of the durham miners association you know that helped him with you know improving his literacy and and his reading but there was no qualification to find any other kind of job I mean, this is, you know, part of the the issue that we have to deal with today, which is about education and preparing people for a rapidly changing uh, workplace. And my father had not had that. So initially he got a job in a steelworks that also had problems a brickworks. And then eventually he becomes a porter in the general hospital in nearby Bishop, Auckland, where I grew up, which became the only mainstay of employment in uh the, the local region as steel works and railway works and everything else around uh the the uh, region started to close down especially in the 1980s so my whole experience of growing up was one of constant loss and constant change and my grandfather and my father and uncles and you know all other extended relatives on my father's side, who'd all worked in the coal mines all the way around County Durham, reflecting on how things had been in what they saw as the heyday for the Durham miners, which was the 1950s. So obviously in relatively recent history for me as a child. And it's worth bearing in mind, just to emphasize for people listening here, that I, and probably the case with John as well, didn't really know anybody who worked in the private sector. I mean, all of the coal uh, mines and the steelworks and the railway works, et cetera, were built up by private industrialists during the Industrial Revolution, but they were all nationalized at the end of World War II because the years of the United Kingdom being cut off from international commerce had obviously um, exerted a toll on them. We see this now with Ukraine um, in, in the wartime uh, with Russia, uh, where you know Ukraine today is on the verge of default. I mean, basically, British industry was, had defaulted um, as a result of the exigencies of war. And so the, the state had to step in, everything was nationalized, the large industrialists sort of faded away, and with them private capital. So uh, apart from, you know, small business people, grocery stores, you know, maybe a local department store, or, you know, a plumber or electrician that weren't related to the um, uh, coal mines, everybody worked in nationalized industry. And you could be in some of those villages like the village where uh, my uh, grandparents lived. And John um, has uh, just been to the Durham Miners' uh, Gala, um, you know, for example, where the whole village would would basically empty out uh, on the occasion of the of the Gala, showing the fact that the only the people who owned the shop, you know, were um, outside of uh, of the mining industry. And I saw that, you know, in those uh, latter um, phases of growing up as a as a relatively um, small child. But that meant that when we got to the 1980s and you had the mass privatization, what I in the book essentially say was the Britain's equivalent of shock therapy that I saw in uh, in Russia in the 1990s, when Margaret Thatcher um, and others came in with a policy of you know, transforming all that nationalized industry, it rendered uh, the, basically the region um, uh, crippled. Uh, basically mass privatization also met mass unemployment and hundreds of thousands of people without the skills to move on to other jobs, the kind of experience my dad had had in the 60s, but on a smaller scale, but now on a large scale. And so my whole childhood, the one that I became more politically conscious in, you know, basically in my teens, uh, was marked by mass unemployment and the entire devastation um, of the region. And of course, it had a huge impact on me. And I went to college, Uh, Well, University at St Andrews um, in 1984 against the backdrop of the miners strike, which was, of course, the largest uh, general strike um, action in British history beyond the 1926 um, general strike, which many of my relatives have participated in as well. So uh, you became very conscious in that kind of environment, not just of your own personal circumstances, but much larger trends because everybody was talking about them.
1: So, I mean, you make, you make that very key point, I think, in the book, and you've just emphasised that there, that, um, I think, that, I can't remember the exact phrase you use in the book, but it's something about how in the 1950s, the Durham miners thought they ruled the world, um, and the gala, for instance, which you mentioned, which took place on Saturday, um, I, you know, it's been described in those years as a state occasion, where the where great political leaders would come and review the troops of the organised working class, if you like, um, and, and that's, that's, in one, at one level, uh, gone. You know, what, what, was, what was lost there was jobs, but one of the points you make in the book is that, for your, that your father, even though he lost his job as a miner, continued to identify himself as a miner even lo- long after he'd stopped working at the, the Pity. And, and I, I was thinking about uh, your dad, Alf, on Saturday um, when I saw a, a rather portly and elderly uh, gentleman Uh, uh, struggling through the heat in Durham with a t-shirt on saying, always a minor. Um, And so that's that lost world that uh, I think you evoke very well in the book. Now, um, there was strengths and weaknesses to that world, obviously. But I came across an interview, which I think I shared with you uh, recently, which, which Hillary Clinton gave to the Financial Times. And she says... You know, she 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 puzzles why people were so nostalgic about mining communities, whether they were from West Virginia or Tyneside, she says, their lives were so grim and disease prone and unhygienic. But the nostalgia for those days, I don't know. Your books, I think, sheds quite a lot on quite a lot of light on what it is that people feel they lost from that world. And it wasn't just jobs. It was something a bit more than that.
2: Yeah, it was a sense of self, uh, identity, and community above all. I think that that's the important element. And obviously, you know, she missed that uh, Mm -hmm. completely, as many people do from the outside. Uh, Because if you're growing up in these pit villages, even if you move around, um, we've also still got all of these ties, um, people in County Durham, because coal mining was so long established, I mean, honestly, it went back to the Romans. You know, the first recorded uh, mining for coal in uh, the region is during uh, the Roman occupation. And, you know, periods after that, um, of course, it long periods after that, it picked up and became the backbone of the industrial revolution. But um, every industry was linked one way or another to coal mining. And all of the miners who got pulled into uh, the industry from rural parts of County Durham initially. I mean, if you look at the maps of County Durham in the early 1800s, they're massively transformed 80 years later. You know, by the time of the major census in the 1880s, 1860s, 1880s. You can see this transformation of a rural area into one that um, is urbanized, but around small industry of, of um, steel works, perhaps and ironworks a coal mine and then all of the associated paint shops and you know places that they made the pit props or the I can see in the background your miner's lamp all of the manufacturing was all tied in to that coal mine and as a result everybody's identity was tied into that as well Mm -hmm. and as people moved around the village though they maintained the networks if if, um, you know the mines didn't have enough jobs or they were looking for you know more work people would basically uh testify in behalf of uh, their friends and relatives as whether they were good workers or not people didn't have resumes you know they had a kind of a work card recording their work but it was really word of mouth that people found out about other jobs and you had generations of people over that time from the sort of 1860s um onwards uh and maybe even also before that all working together everybody would have known each other and you know this this geographic mobility around the county people were constantly moving around working in different mines depending on the ebb and flow of the work there was also um uh, locally based regiments most famously in um county durham the durham light infantry that also recruited uh miners and then obviously had a searing impact on the region in um, uh, the period around World War I, and then you know later around World War II. But all of the leisure activities were grouped around the mines as well. And the Durham Miners Association uh, was not just about trying to improve conditions underground, it was also about improving conditions for the miners and overground as well. And Durham miners' dues, uh paid for an enormous amount of what they called welfare activities, uh, football clubs, um, Obviously, everybody thinks about pigeon fancying and whippets and greyhound racing. My granddad did all of those things, allotments, uh, you know, kind of working men's clubs for for the miners, but also education. And I myself benefited in the 1980s from small grants from the Durham Miners Association, from the children of miners, you know, for you know what they saw as the betterment, you know, of uh, education uh, for the local communities. And so these identities. There was language as well Pygmatic, a, a particular language that uh, people spoke among themselves. There was such a strong self uh, a sense rather of self and then of mutual support local uh, the local cooperative the co co-op, uh, the you know the community store everything was tied in to these communities and they were very vibrant
1: mm-hmm. but I mean we should also recognize that you know they had their imperfections these uh, communities and you describe for instance like the sort of um, uh discriminations that you experienced within your uh community um the particular the the, the the you know you you were obviously singled out the phrase you use in the book i think is as a clever lass you know someone whom the community uh could invest in um the family could invest in uh and it was your the, the title of the book comes from your dad's advice to you that there's there's nothing for you here so we're going to get you educated and give you opportunities and those Opportunities are probably going to uh, take t- you elsewhere. What were the limits of, of, of those communities? I mean, you've talked about the strengths, and I'd, I'd agree with you. Um, I you know I mean I recognise the world you describe. And what were the limits of those communities? Um, as well as the strengths. Well
2: yeah, I mean, they were clearly very insular. Mm-hmm. And just as um, there was a kind of a strength in that, st- that community, there was also, you know, some resentment of other people coming in, you know, for example, they weren't always welcoming. I mean, even, you know, the, um, the development of their own language became, you know, fairly exclusionary, one might say, because you could actually tell, you know, from one village to the next where someone was from. And and, and there was, you know, always people always had to vouch for someone in the community. I mean, they're very traditional communities, so Mm -hmm. they weren't always, you know, very um, uh, tolerant uh, about difference. And, Mm -hmm. you know, being marked as a clever lass or a clever lad, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'd been of, uh, you know, kind of a different gender, um, you know, there would have been a sort of an expectation in many respects that you might leave the community. And that was always um, or often, you know, a source of um, distress at different times. Some people would say, well, who do you think you are? You yes. know, kind of, you know, you, you're posh, you are, you know, yes. well, you know, wanting to go and do you know, something else and, you know, have these aspirations. And others would be a lot of grief within the family, particularly under the old grammar school system, where, you know, kids um, would, would take the 11 plus and a very small number. Um, of boys or girls would get a grammar school place, but the expectation was that then they would leave the community because those kind of skills that they would acquire educational schools would be very limited. Uh, there would be very limited professions jobs there in you know, a white collar professions because those communities were of course pre- predominantly working class. And so you would see families in these very close knit ties all split up and it was almost a sort of a feeling like bereavement my um, father's brother for example he he was not uh he did not go to grammar school but he went off to become a mining engineer and there there weren't jobs for mining engineers the you know the very tiny pit villages he went away and the family pretty much never saw him again you know so there's always these kind of feelings that uh separation and loss and always i think you know to some degree a a sense of being apart and as you said the the politicians um who would come uh, to the north it would come to the north but it wasn't like the you know the miners themselves were really going anywhere else either all the people yeah. really travel apart from in search of work
1: you use this phrase in, in the book which I think is a really interesting one and it crops up both when you're talking about your early life in county Durham and it appears later when you're talking about what we do about these things uh, to, what we do to improve conditions in, in these places and this phrase structure of opportunity um, which I think is a really interesting phrase. And I wonder whether you could just elaborate, I suppose, both on what you mean by that term and how that shaped your trajectory, which, you know, leads you now to be sitting in Bethesda.
2: Yeah, it's sort of the idea of infrastructure. So, um, you know, when, when you think about anything, you know, if you want to move from one place to the other, you need certain degrees of infrastructure um you know roads and means of transportation and you know in the north of england it was all about constructing infrastructure for industry and you know how um you know you would develop all kinds of networks well all of us you know need that kind of infrastructure let's say for opportunity to to get a job or you know to get on with life it might come from your immediate family in some cases and when we think about the durham miners they had the durham miners association that was paid for their dues that it created its own infrastructure of opportunity for leisure as well as for work there was the networks of uh people uh that uh miners and others in the community became part of who could vouch for them you know to help them literally find the next job or if they're out of work to help them um you know make it through from you know one job to the next or if they were disabled or you know a family member had been killed in the mines the mine the mining infrastructure uh would pull together you know to provide uh for those families and i extrapolated out of that thinking about you know the infrastructure of opportunity that had enabled me uh, to get an education and move forward, it was part of the development of the comprehensive school system, moving away from in county Durham the eleven plus and the grammar school system, which expanded educational opportunities for a larger number of people you know beyond the two or three um, in any given year at an elementary school that might then you know basically uh, end up at a at a grammar school uh, The infrastructure of opportunities is also you know the the means of accessing that uh, when you and I um you know were growing up uh, John Uh, durham county council the local education authority would pay for us to go to university now it's very difficult for people to imagine that now but i mean it was because only five or six percent of kids you know overall were um able to um you know go to university on the basis of qualifications or, or interest as well but then there was also vocational training so the infrastructure of opportunity broke down for my father Uh, Let's say so when he uh, lost his job in the coal mines, he had no the qualifications, there was no retraining possibility that came in later. It was in the 60s, there wasn't anything there. It was really only in the course of the the 70s and 80s. Interestingly, of course, some of it came when Britain joined the European Union, uh, and there were um, all kinds of grants for I mean, another version of Sarah's, you know, leveling up of of today, the European Union had all of the regional development policies and actually the UK, people forget that now, you know, totally tapped into those as well. It wasn't just the central government that provided, you know, um, opportunities and and literal infrastructure in the part of the European Union. You know, after the end of the coal mines and the steelworks, a lot of the money for reclaiming the land or repurposing the land uh, came from European Union grants and uh, outright subsidies um and you know other um other funding so um the infrastructure of opportunity is a kind of whole that whole complex of things that enable people to get ahead in life education uh things around employment and training and you know ultimately then also um you know in some cases it's literal it's literally money um, i describe in the book how oftentimes i wasn't actually able to take advantage of a particular opportunity So, for example, I um, I was offered a place at the local uh, girls school in um, Durham um, City, Durham High, after I was one of the last group of people who did take the 11 plus. But my parents couldn't afford the bus fare, the uniforms, you know, all of the, you know, additional accoutrements that one needs to, you know, go to that kind of uh, school. So I didn't go. I mean, I don't regret it, but I'm just pointing out that, I wasn't able to take advantage of that opportunity because of, 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 um, of, of funding issues, but I was able to take advantage of the opportunity to go to university because Durham County Council had uh, uh, maintained uh, grant support uh, for um, you know, children of, of a low income.
1: When you got to the US, um, you know, you, 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 start to, you immediately start to see parallels between certain places in the US and, and their experience of industrial. Uh, and, and social and economic change. Um, what, what, were the, what were the things that struck you in that, you know, as you, as you moved around the Rust Belt and sort of got to know America when you, when you first arrived
2: there? Well, what's interesting is I, I, I did actually through the prism, first of all, of the Soviet Union, which yes, was course, yeah. totally counterintuitive to people. Yeah. So I went from the northeast of England, you know, to university in Scotland, mm-hmm. but I got a scholarship in 1987, 1988 to study for a year in the Soviet Union. And this is like kind of the peak of Mikhail Gorbachev's perestroika and, you know, attempts to reform the system. Um, and it, but, it, you know, little did I know at the time, although you could feel it when you got there, that this is just a few years out from the dissolution, the collapse of the Soviet Union. But it was definitely the death throes of the economic system. And I immediately recognized that Moscow was just like the northeast of England, but on steroids. Um, Even Moscow um, looked like a very large version of my hometown. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's nothing in the shops. That was because, of course, supply had broken down rather than demand in, you know, kind of the case of north of England. But it was also the same idea of a kind of an industrial system running out of steam. Mm-hmm. And of course, everything is nationalized in the Soviet Union. I came from an area where everything was nationalized as well. Yeah, so it yeah. wasn't a huge leap. It wasn't like a big shock to the system, as if I'd come from London or a more entrepreneurial, you know, transformative, you know, place in, um, you know, the UK. I mean, I'd never, you know, kind of understood the whole financial and banking and service system because it wasn't mm-hmm. really existing yeah. in northeast of England. And so, the Soviet Union was quite obvious. And then, in 1989, when I came to Harvard uh, for graduate school in Boston. Boston was in the same situation, so all of the big industries—meatpacking plants, brickworks, uh, the um, factories that uh, were, you know, manufacturing, you know, all kinds of major goods, um, car manufacturing, for example, textile mills—you know, up um, in different parts of Massachusetts. All of the working class culture of Boston, but and Boston had been a city also very much dominated by the working class where many people from the north of England and of course Ireland and other places had actually moved to in search of work. It was going through its same um, period of deindustrialization and it 's really deindustrialization from heavy industry of course, and the transformation into the sort of the service sector high tech innovation I mean Boston is quite transformed now, but it certainly wasn't in the 1980s. And I saw when I just, you know, went on a foray outside to explore, you know, kind of the the same phenomenon that I experienced at home. And the things i would actually also seen the Soviet in these huge, big factories, uh, you know, where everything was literally running out of steam. The same thing was happening. And graduate students were renting apartments from people who used to have great blue collar jobs in, um, in these big factories in and around Boston. And they'd lost their work and they were renting out um, their, you know, houses, basically to just kind of make ends meet.
1: Mm. So you 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 sort of, you were in these three sort of, sort of on the face of it, radically different places, but actually were they, they, places which shared some important similarities. The northeast of England, which uh, the geographer uh, Ray Hudson has described as the preeminent state managed region, which is, you know, what you're saying, you know, everything. Was national that all the basic industries were nationalized and with the expansion of the welfare state you had a huge proportion of the economy in the, in the in the, um, the public sector uh, that was very similar to the to the uh, the, the post-soviet experience all, in all three places it was this sort of very quick collapse of the traditional industries which left communities high high and dry um, and what in the book what you sort of suggest is that, in each place, also alongside this, were kind of populist reactions, um, populist uh, responses, if you like, to this new political terrain. Actually, it wasn't necessarily all that new. It's something as you, you suggest in the book. It accumulated in some places for quite a long time, um, uh, particularly in, in parts of the US and, and the UK. It was a very short, short collapse in the U- USSR, obviously. Um, so you had these three places which produced Brexit. Johnson. We're not going to talk about them in any great detail. Uh, Trump in the US and, and Putin in the um, uh, in the uh, in, in in Russia. What, what you know, and, and in each of those cases, those those politicians drew their support from, or much of their support, not all of it, but much of their support from these places which had been left behind in the jargon and the in the popular narrative today. What was it, do you think, that people in those places saw? In those leaders, um, or even now, of course, you know. Even in, in, in now, of course, in, in, the, in the Soviet Union, Putin still draws his a lot of his support from these dispossessed places. Trump in the U.S. still pulls very well as a potential candidate in in, um, in the Rust Belt and so on. Um, and of course, we're having this big debate in the UK now about what happens to the Red War with the demise of Johnson and so on. So these issues are still around um they kind of emerged they've emerged a few years ago but they're still around what produced this kind of populist urge if you like in these places what what, what are the populist leaders offer these places uh, bearing in mind the analysis of, of the demise that you offered just a moment ago
2: yeah look i think part of it is identity um and it's the kind of that that feeling that people have lost their sense of selves because everything is transformed to their detriment And it's also transformed very fast, very kind of fast pace of change. As you said, there was an accumulation in both the UK and the US of various factors. I mean, we can all explain, you know, quite clearly what happened, you know, in the United States is sort of like, you know, globalization, you know, factories moved. You know, those factories uh, that would once been in somewhere like Boston or Michigan or Pennsylvania or Ohio, you know, as I branched out across the United States, I married into a family from the uh, the Midwest. So I started, you know, from the 90s onwards, seeing all of this, you know, really um, in a very concentrated form in the Midwest. And again, just like, you know, back in the northeast of England, you know, factories moved and the people, the people ended up staying. Because this is a kind of you know pursuit of profit and efficiency, or you know kind of it was just the development of these new industries um, or new sectors, that um, you know the investment in the old places of smokestacks that just didn't that just didn't cut it. You know we've we've all done and you've done the research. Sarah nailed it at the very beginning. You know the importance of universities and education and centres of innovation, and you know kind of development um, that um, you know those kind of driving factors are not really in there in those old industrial places. Uh, or they, if they are, they're in very, you know, concentrated pockets, and you know, you saw in the case of Russia, for example, that Moscow becomes, you know, the concentration of everything. In, in Britain, it's it's London. In the United States, it's more complex, but it's you know, it's seen traditionally as the East Coast and the West Coast, and then some of the you know big cities, but you know, in sort of concentrations there too, and you know, you get these immediate uh, divides that become very difficult. Uh, to overcome and then you know the identities just reinforce this identity of loss and grievance and you know people remembering about how things were before I mean I think you know, when Sarah you know di- framed the discussion and talked about all the different initiatives <laughs> that have um, that have been um, instituted over all of these decades it just underscores how hard it is to tackle this and that the and, and in each case there's no consultation uh, with the communities and uh, the people themselves, it's as you know Sarah was saying, and as you're suggesting as well, John, something is done to people. So well, someone like Putin, for example, comes in at the end of the 1990s, where you've had all of you know what seems to be Western educated, although they weren't really, but there were certainly Western influenced economists. They used to call them young men in pink shorts, you know. Kind of strange image anyway it's kind of a derogatory term you know kind of coming in with all these ideas of Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Economics the same kinds of things that had influenced Reagan and Thatcher and trying to put it into practice in Russia and just kind of creating as most people saw it mayhem and pulling the rug out of underneath their lives Putin comes in you know less of that and you know he Mm -hmm. concentrates obviously on building up the economy he's very uh, lucky because of oil and gas prices but he's you know kind of focusing on the state and the state, you know, kind of providing for people. 60% of people in Russia today, which forms the mainstay of Putin's um, support, are tied into the state. And so when you think about the populist movements and then the d- demands in the UK and in the United States, they're quite similar bring jobs back, give us something. You know i keep getting emails from people saying oh you know brexit was all about freedom and independence and i it was just saying the north of england bollocks. everybody mm-hmm. wanted my family we're voting for a job and mm-hmm. when they want control they wanted some money back freedom and independence from what i mean they they, they they didn't want dependence and they didn't want the loss of freedom but they're wanting the british government to rest itself free then of europe if that was causing the british government not to be able to invest in the north of england
1: okay so so, so basically with
2: trump the same thing basically people are saying okay the democrats aren't doing anything they're the party of globalization our jobs are going to mexico or indonesia or china we want somebody to bring it back trump's saying he's going to bring it back
1: so um today just by sheer coincidence um a report has been released about child poverty in the UK. And it shows that uh, since 2014 to now, child poverty has risen at a faster rate in the Northeast of England than any other part of the country. Uh, In some parts of the country, it's falling actually. It has been falling. Uh, The Northeast has the highest rate of child poverty. Using the measures in this report, 38% of households um, uh, with children experience child poverty. Um, So we've had this since 2016, we've had this um, commitment with Trump uh, and and, and with uh, the Tories in Britain, this language of levelling up, which uh, Sarah introduced at the beginning. So we've talked about levelling up. We've had a white paper in this country setting out the government's plans. But in that time, according to some very, very basic measures of social economic development, things have actually got considerably worse. Uh, for, for regions like the northeast of England, so uh, I, put to, I put to you a very simple question: as a Russianist, you'll understand where it comes from. What is to be done? <laughs> um, you know, what is what? What in policy terms do you see? You set out some in the, in the, uh, the final part of the book. Um, what do you see as the key policy issues that um, uh, need to be tackled um, to, to, you know, to make an impact at least? On the kind of trends that we're describing.
2: Well, the child poverty um, issue obviously um, has had a lot of research into it, and there's some you know fairly straightforward approaches. I mean, you can see in the United States, for example. I mean, interestingly enough, um, under Trump, poverty did decline. So to give him his due, there we said we weren't going to talk to him about, about mm. him very much. But let's put it in that kind of context. But you know, through the sort of deregulation, you know, of, of some of the industry, you know, people were able to. Um, uh, you know, cobbled together a whole series of jobs. uh, And, you know, kind of basically, um, poverty rates uh, did go down, but there was a rub to this. And one of the things that I should have mentioned, you know, uh, before one of the peculiarities of the US system, uh, which of course, you know, causes a lot of consternation, head scratching for everybody coming in from the outside, is the healthcare system. And uh, this was tethered to work, you know, back in the time of um, World War Two, you know, to prevent, um, you know, kind of basically um, inflation and, you know, wage pressure, uh, creating these benefits and tying them to work was, you know, intended to be you know, a form of monetary control during um, World War Two. And it's never been decoupled. And so in a way, you kind of create these welfare states in big industries. And that struck me right away. Of course, most Americans didn't see that. But I mean, it's no different, you know, from the system that we had under nationalized industry in the north of England, where everything was tied in to your work uh, and to the nationalized sectors. You said the National Health Service, um, uh, you know, became all kind of part of that complex. And in the United States, these huge industries, if you work for, you know, say the Ford Motor Company, your health benefits came from the Ford Motor Company. When you lost your job, you don't have any healthcare. And you saw in the Soviet Union now that in Russia, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that the big um industries also had their own health clinics and everything, and that those all kind of collapsed as well. And although the state was providing healthcare, then people didn't have access. And similarly in the UK, when there's all the cuts backs, you know, the National Health Service as we know goes under strain and you know people's access to service gets uh, gets diminished. Mm-hmm. Now the health healthcare is still actually very important. Um, in the UK and it actually gives us a way forward because people are not tethered to a particular workplace as a result of it. I mean, in theory, given the national nature of healthcare system, you can move about in search of work. But then the problem, you know, becomes, you know, is are you capable of doing that? And getting back to the issues of um, childcare, of course, health is one important part of it. In the United States, health outcomes for children, poverty, you know, obviously are, are pretty grim. And it's the same, you know, in the UK. But we also saw in the United States during the COVID epidemic that child poverty dropped because there were payments, uh for children and families. This was simply as simple as that. Now there's a big debate in the retaining or reshaping, formulating some kind of childcare benefit, because the, the, the notable drop in child poverty as a result of these COVID, and of course, there's a lot of resistance to this. You've seen Joe Manchin, you know, who's now become the infamous uh, Senator from West Virginia, I think you guys should invite him over actually to ucl and you know have a conversation with him you know basically saying that um you know child benefits would be wasted he, he's not uh, not a fan of them at all this mm-hmm. is somebody who's never experienced poverty himself yeah, yeah, i am yeah. the recipient of you know like many people child benefit mm-hmm. i grew up in poverty as a child mm-hmm. and i know that the child benefit made uh you know a huge impact on um, uh, my family's situation, so really, in the case of the united kingdom it 's the austerity politics that were instituted you know since the um, uh, the, the great recession the financial crisis okay. of two thousand and eight two thousand and nine that have undercut you know many of the basic services that have helped to alleviate in particular child poverty you know the access to the national health service which has been you know cut down particularly in rural and small areas the general hospital that my father and bo- and my mother also worked as as a nurse you know back in uh, the 60s 70s and 80s in the uk it's had its accident and emergencies stripped uh, you know there's been that centralization um, of uh, hospitals to larger entities uh, you know that's also undercut the communities. But one of the other issues is community assets. And that gets back to what Sarah was sort of saying at the very beginning. You know, if, if the government um, doesn't have the assets uh, for investment, and that's kind of basically austerity uh, arguments, and you know, one can imagine more cuts now in the wake of COVID and Brexit and all the other knock and effects in the United Kingdom, where can communities get assets from in the united states a lot of poverty alleviation is done by charities foundations and community efforts and you know in the uk obviously voluntary services you have a lot of uh, a more of those in uh, london than you do in in other places but in places like the north of england and many of the places in the northwest uh, the, the the midwest rather in the united states that lost their industry and lost the big businesses there's no community assets Hmm. And if you think back again to the Durham Miners Association and back in that so-called heyday of the 1950s, a lot of stuff that um, was generating communities was not generated by the state. It was generated by the Jews of the miners, the cooperative system, you know, which kind of created a, a, a kind of miners safety net that they often created for themselves. And they did that even, you know, before nationalisation as well. Yeah, in absolutely. The private, yeah, when the mines were privately owned, the miners um, or mine owners did nothing you know for the miners mm. the church might when they were mine owners but, mm. but very little and all of the miners recuperation and treatment places for accidents uh the mm. places where their wives might give birth you know kind of maternity uh you know so we all paid for by the miners themselves because yeah. they had assets so why you a, don't have assets what do you do and anyway yeah, that's, that's an important quality.
1: point there was the yeah. accumulation of these local yeah. assets which were which were controlled locally and i think that's that, 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 you know, thinking about how you how you recreate that world is, I think, is a really important point. And it's you know, we're seeing some of that, you know, the work with the work we've been doing in County Durham and particularly uh, looking at what's going on in sacristan You know, what you have there, a very determined and committed group of people who are very conscious of their history, who are trying to remake some of that world. Often in the face, it has to be said of uh, very great odds. We've got some questions from the audience coming in, uh, Fiona, which um, I'd, I'd like to share with you. Uh, so Maria Heron uh, is, said, it's a fascinating talk. I grew up in aside in the 2000s, and much of what you talk about today is true, especially regarding what she calls cold-stalgia. Um, this, uh, <laughs> That's a great I, term, uh, I
2: love that, yeah. yeah so, nice.
1: uh, and she, but she, makes, she goes on to make the point that, um, and I think this, is, this has been commented on a bit in the last few days, that if you're looking at the new leadership election in the Tory party, the whole discussion about levelling up appears to have vanished. None of the candidates are talking about this, so she's asking how do we ensure the ideas remain on the policy agenda, and is devolution the silver bullet for post-industrial communities, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big debates, isn't it, about devolution, in <clears throat> particular, we've been having that for a very long time, um, you know, when I was still a student, uh, you know, before I moved to the United States, we had all of these local development councils that uh, corporations that uh, Sarah mentioned, and there was the whole idea of devolution to the northeast, um, Derek Foster, you mm. know, local MP, um, when he was chief whip of the Labour Party, he was pushing, you know, Tony Blair at one point to the idea mm. of a Northern Assembly, uh, not just, you know, like in Wales and um, obviously in um, Scotland, but again, it comes back down to um, assets again. You know, mm. do you have an asset base? Uh, You know, sort of Scotland, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of um, debate back and forth about, um, you know, all the subsidies that people see that are getting sent to to Scotland, you know, from uh, the centre, you know, how do you have your own, you know, tax raising capacity, you know, we have this kind of debates about, um, you know, how much of uh, taxation, you know, goes to Westminster and then how much uh, comes back again. Honestly, the EU, um, that was the, the mechanism as well, wasn't it? I mean, the United yes. Kingdom had issues, but actually a lot came back. And actually, in some respects, a lot more came back to places like the north and deprived regions. Than people would ever understand. Well, and
1: more more than more than they're getting now under. So uh, exactly, not- and <laughs> so that
2: the yeah, but but yeah. the problem is if you've got a very weak tax base, and I, I studied fiscal mm-hmm. federalism in Russia for a long time, and there are parts mm-hmm. of Russia that you know even if they kept to their own tax receipts, they wouldn't have enough for development. Yes. And they're you know heavily dependent. That would be true of most places the in
1: the UK outside of London and uh, the exactly.
2: South-west. So yeah. you have to think mm-hmm. about the the taxation, the financial aspects of that. You know, it's yeah. one thing. You know you can think about think about devolution in other forms, right which is more on the consultation uh of uh the of of um the local communities, the larger regions we're having a different thought of regionalism at the moment mm-hmm. debates about how you could create these integrated mayoral um mm-hmm. you know as we have in north tyneside yes. or you've got in manchester or in teesside mm-hmm. you know for example how do you give people more participation more say in in, in all of this not just consultation but actually yeah. a real voice yeah. and a stake, as sarah's talking about and i think that's all part of uh, of this uh, this discussion
1: so uh, another couple, uh, there's, there's a question from john Holmes, which i think you've sort of already answered in your answer uh, and then there's a question from paul swinney who's asked Really interesting question. What should the role of a place like Sacreston or let's say Bishop Auckland be in the 21st century economy? What role can they play? I mean, I suppose the lurking behind this is the point you made earlier on that, um, you know, if you look at Russia, you know, you have economic power and, um, and wealth concentrated in Moscow. If you look at the United States, it's concentrated in a rebirth, reborn New York City or, or Boston or whatever. Um, so you could ask the question, not just about places in the northeast, but the small towns in Russia that like you mentioned earlier or the, 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 the communities in the Rust Belt. Have they got a role to play in in a, a sort of knowledge economy, knowledge economy of the future? Um, do you have a thought on that?
2: That's also a complicated question, obviously. Um, and um, I did a lot of research and work on this um, in Russia in the 1990s and uh, 2000s. Um, I wrote a a book that I'm not not recommending everybody rush out to read, just to be very clear, Mm. uh, on Siberia and the growth of Siberian cities with, again, my colleague Clifford Gaddy, looking at the, you know, the fact that there's these million strong cities that were built in Siberia by the Soviets. Mm. uh, And they really shouldn't exist from an economic point Mm. of view, because they were were centrally planned around. Uh, areas of industry and their time has long passed. And if you look at cities, you know, kind of across the world, they rise and fall. Uh, you know, some cities that were the, the fastest growing city in the United States in 1900 was Duluth, Minnesota. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it isn't mm-hmm. now. And I think most Americans go Duluth, uh, you know, mm-hmm. them, themselves, let alone Brits. So you know, um, places do um, rise and fall. Bishop Auckland used to be a small market town before mm-hmm. the development of you know larger industry. The population is exponentially larger now than it used to be. But you know the the town uh, today, like many other places, has become more of a dormitory town. You know, for people commuting to other places, and that gets to kind of part of the point, because then there has to be the ability of people to work somewhere and to commute. Now telecommunicate uh, telecommuting. You know, I'm I'm doing that right now from Bethesda. We're all doing it through Zoom. You know, that might be kind of help to revitalize some of these communities. You know, as it becomes the place that people actually work, but they work from home. But others, it becomes to transportation and all of our transportation discussions in the UK in particular are about improving transportation around London and Greater London. Mm. You know, the whole northern powerhouse idea of Manchester that, you know, Sarah, you know, described before, all the high speed connections, those are kind of literally grinding to a halt. And when people um uh have talked at kind of the local community level about their feelings, people don't necessarily want to go to London. They want to be able to go to, you know, if you live in Manchester, maybe they want to go to Preston, you know, in Lancashire or maybe, you know, from Preston they might want to go to Sunderland. Or mm. You know, you you you're not connecting, you know, in a sufficient way um, all of these places. It gets back to the point about infrastructure of opportunity. Sometimes it's real infrastructure. It yeah. might be, you know, kind of a five G, you know, kind of Wi-Fi or broadband. It might be, you know, kind of commuter rail. It might be other, you know, kind of forms of people being able to get to a uh, from A to B, you know, for for a job. So maybe the role of some of these, you know, smaller places is to be yes, part of a larger a, a node in a larger Um, knowledge economy or of of something else but they still have to have the wherewithal to do that and one of the things is that a lot of these places I mean Bishop Auckland just got some money from the government for the future high streets and future towns the high street of Bishop Auckland is a literal disaster I mean, I was just there uh, um, uh, in, in June, and the, the buildings are literally falling down. I mean, some of them are literally propped up with girders mm-hmm. now because they have yes. falling down. We have a, there's a project, the Auckland project that Jonathan Ruffer, a philanthropist, is invested in in the marketplace, but there's just a huge debate about what to do with the main street because it's filled with more nail salons and hairdressers than you've ever can imagine I can't understand you know actually why there are so many there but then yeah. it's all pound shops and you know thrift stores and charity shops because the you know the main shopping has now moved to you know satellite locations for all the people who are living in new housing and commuting somewhere else mm-hmm. and so I think we've got a huge debate about what do you do with those urban cores those mm-hmm. those old I mean can you transform them as you do with some places into somewhere people would like to gather Yes. and so that's part of the debate as well do people want to gather if they're working from home we need to have serious discussions you know, about this but i think that thing of the role you know kind of everything changes we don't want to be turning places back to where they had been before sometimes it's not the right place to invest but oftentimes a lot of people can't move from there mm-hmm. and in some cases they move there because they're doing something somewhere else because it's a, an area of cheap housing or yeah, you know yeah. kind of working somewhere else
1: yeah, many of the places you describe in the villages and that have survived precisely because uh, housing remains cheap. And um, that's part of what allows them to re- reproduce themselves. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, there's, there's, there's loads of questions coming in and I'm trying to group them because I can't go through them all. Um, and some of them have been answered, I think, by existing remarks. But there's a couple of um, questions here from Andy Pike and David Marlow about the attractiveness. What, what is in, in terms of the attractiveness? of populism at disadvantaged communities is that inevitable or are there policies and approaches which would mitigate this the appeal if you like and irrelevant going forward um so that's there's a, there's a group of questions around that i hope i hope i've done them all justice probably haven't but it's the best i can do in the, in the time we have left is, is there is there something beyond the the I suppose the cheap tricks, if you like, of populists, that is, I guess is what's lurking behind these questions. I mean, you could argue there's nothing wrong with populism. If uh, people feel that they, aren't, they haven't got a voice in society, populism's a, a perfectly rational strategy. But do you, do you think that these places have a particular, you know, it's inevitable that they're going to fall for these uh, arguments, or is, there, or is there a way to, to mitigate that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's the form of populism, right? I mean, I get a lot of Italians complain that I'm giving populism, uh, uh, you know, a bad Bad name, name. the idea of Vox Populi, you know, for Mm. Italians, I mean, that's kind of embedded in, you know, the kind Mm. of, uh, that sort of idea about giving people a voice. I think that's exactly Mm. it. You've just Mm. nailed it. I mean, you're on uh, the board of Red Hills, the Pittman's parliament, Mm. and uh, the miners of County Durham, as as you and most people know, you know, they built their own parliament back in the day when they didn't have the vote because they didn't have the um, financial means to um, be worthy you know, in the you know the times of suffrage at that point uh to be given a vote you know there were often um you know working class representatives were you know given a vote or allowed to stand in town councils but for mostly they were excluded from the political process so they pulled their own money and built their own parliament. And their idea was that they would then resolve the issues of their communities, their larger communities, and all this network across the the whole county. And you know, each um pit village had its own representative and its own pew in a place to come in and sit and to have their voice heard. And I think that's the key. It's when people don't feel that they've got a stake. I mean, Sarah was laying that out in the overview. Mm. And you've just said now, you know, when people don't have a voice and they don't have representation. And look, you're seeing in the United States now, you're getting um a new wave of trade unionism I mean I don't want really to call it trade unionism but you're getting you know, like our research assistants at Brookings uh, formed a union because they didn't feel that they had you know a full voice in the participation of the institution um, you know we, you're getting graduate students who uh, have teaching positions in the United States forming you know unions uh, baristas and Starbucks forming unions Amazon workers forming unions why are they doing that for obvious reason they don't feel represented and people in the United States and in the United Kingdom now, and in you know Russia as well, honestly, mm-hmm. don't feel that they have any representation and stakes in what's happening. Yeah, and it, and then, so that's when the kind of populism can become malign because somebody comes in and says, you know, I hear it, you're being you know ripped off, this is who's to blame for all of this. People are not listening to you. I'm listening to you. I'm going to be your champion. And that's exactly what Trump did. It's exactly what um, Boris Johnson did as well. And of course, it's what Putin has said. You know, I'm going to you know, basically be out there and I'm going to do all of these things for you. And Putin, you know, has these regular, he hasn't done it, you know, kind of uh, quite recently because of the war, but these big call-in shows where he does everything from getting a little girl, you know, a ballet outfit to fixing a pothole outside some old lady's window. It's all staged, of course. But it's like, you know, fix fixing everything from, you know, the top, uh, you know, all the way down to the bottom. And populism, you know, reacts when you've got the kind of short circuiting of representative democracy, where the representatives are just so out of reach. And, you know, when you think about the so-called red wall in the UK and then the blue wall in the United States, both the Democratic Party and the Labour Party were seen to have lost their roots um, in terms of not just the working class, but in the kind of people who feel excluded from the larger system. And that, you know, that these parties no longer speak for them. And in fact, all of the newspaper articles I was reading yesterday in the United States about this, pop- because, you know, you've seen that Biden's popularity has plummeted, uh, is also because the fear that the Democrats, are the party of... You know the elites just like you know in mm. the north of england and, mm. and in the run-up to the 2019 um uh, general election when i said to relatives you know you're going to vote for labor they're like hell no mm. i'm not voting for you know jeremy corbyn and i said well oh, what's the problem with jeremy corbyn you know as part of a, a, a disc and this is well he's fine if he's in islington but well, i don't yeah. want him here okay. so islington becomes a stand-in no offense to anyone from islington here you know from you know the idea that you're completely remote from anything that i'm doing and you're not representing me
0: Right.
1: I mean, that, oh, you want me to kind of worms there. I like Islington, by the way, just to be very
2: clear. And Islington, (laughs) of course, itself used to be a very working class area, right? I mean, that also used to be, uh, um, you know, a very different place from how it's perceived now.
1: Right. Fiona, that's been um, brilliant. Um, It's always a great pleasure. And, um, but we're running out of time. And and, um, I'd like to thank you for uh, your contribution, but I think Sarah would like to offer some uh, concluding remarks in the last couple of minutes that we'll have, so I uh, hope to see you again soon.
2: No, thank you. I mean, you guys are doing great work there as well. I mean, I hope that there'll be opportunity to do things like this again.
1: I hope so too, yeah.
0: Thank you, John. Um, and thanks, Fiona. I'm not sure what I can really add to that. Um, what a brilliant conversation, and I hope everybody who joined found it useful. Um, I mean, I think it's to be hoped that this starts to that we're now at a point, I suppose, where we can start to think about how we rebuild for the future, how we move beyond coal nostalgia. I can't even say that, but I love the term. I think we've had a powerful reminder today that left behind places weren't always left behind. Actually, they're a consequence of either deliberate or inadvertent neglect, but they're not inevitable. And I think that's it's really important to remember that. I think Fiona has spoken really powerfully about the importance, not only of economic identity, but how that is interconnected to a sense of self, to your social, your community identity. You talked about even having your own language um, and your reflections on how the infrastructure of opportunity, which is a wonderful phrase, how that is broken um, and how we need to rebuild it as part of physical infrastructure, the social infrastructure, social networks, community assets. It makes me wonder if part of the problem of the past is that policy responses have been really focused on investing in economies and there are reasons for that, but they're not focused on communities and people and in fact they're often disconnected from people and the human consequences. So to repeat john's phrase, what is to be done, I think it's really thinking about how we can start to build a response working together that can move the dial on some of those very basic measures that john mentioned where we're actually going backwards. But the point of representation and voice seems to me to be utterly crucial. I don't think devolution is a magic bullet as somebody asked but I do think it might be part of the solution alongside this unionism and community activism you were describing Um, but really it has to be surely about how we give diverse people from diverse communities a voice and ensuring that that voice is heard and responded to. So I hope today you've heard some interesting ideas about how we might take that forward. Thank you for joining the event. It's been an absolute pleasure. And we're so grateful to Fiona for giving up your time and to John for such insightful questions. Thank you both. Everybody have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.